Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from the words of Henry Morris from his book, The Bible and Modern Science. This will be my last reading in this book. It's written back in 1951. It uh, still speaks to us today. Uh, a little bit old in places, I'm sure you've recognized, but you'll see the, the great love this man had for the Word of God and his desire to let other people share that love. Question today, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? We know he did, but let's hear this confirmation too. To deny it means to deny an a priori grounds the specific testimony of six of the eight New Testament writers. The other two definitely imply their belief in and knowledge of the resurrection. As we have seen, these witnesses are all established as to date and authenticity. The descriptions of the resurrection morning and the later appearances of Christ in the four Gospels and in Acts do not have the character of manufactured evidence. The differences in the accounts, which, however, are not contradictory but complementary, alone prove this. The different accounts would almost necessarily have been the same if the writers had connived on the tale. The Apostle Paul, acknowledged even by his critics to have been a man of great intellect and discernment, states that he was instantaneously changed from a Pharisee of the Pharisees to a Christian at the sight of the resurrected Christ. His great life and works prove the genuineness of his conversion. He states in his first letter to the Corinthians that more than 500 people, many of whom were still living when he wrote, saw the risen Lord on one occasion. There can be little doubt that Jesus actually was crucified and was dead when he was placed in the tomb. A Roman soldier thrust a sword into his side to assure himself that he really was dead and saw blood mixed with water flow out, evidence of a hemorrhage in the heart cavity. He was placed in a tomb, covered from head to foot with grave clothes, and a Roman guard was set to watch the sealed tomb. It is unthinkable that he could merely have been in a, a sort of coma and could have recovered sufficiently to have removed the grave clothes and walked out of the tomb. Yet it is also a fact of history that the tomb was empty early on the first day of the week following his crucifixion. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would certainly have produced the body, if they could have done so, in order to halt the rapidly growing Christian faith. And this rapid growth, there were over 5,000 converts in one day at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 I believe, can only be explained by the fact that these people believed that the tomb of Christ was empty, and also for that matter, that many had seen him since his resurrection. But it might be argued that the disciples had actually stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb as the Pharisees bribed the soldiers to testify. Of course, even if the soldiers of the watch were sleeping on guard, that very fact would have made it impossible for them to see the disciples steal the body. So no real proof could be offered. Besides, there is an overpowering moral and spiritual question involved. It is unthinkable that the greatest spiritual force and power of righteousness that the world has ever seen could have been founded on an intentional deception. 
The very change in character of the disciples themselves reveals the lie in this blasphemous charge. Men who had been weak, vacillating and doubting suddenly became bold, powerful, spirit-filled proclaimers of the gospel of salvation through faith in the risen Christ. They had nothing to gain materially from any such deception. Instead, they were persecuted and regarded as mad fanatics. Most of them were finally put to death in the great Herodian and Roman persecutions. The uniform testimony of even the enemies of Christianity down through the centuries had been that the apostles and the thousands of other Christians that have been slain for their faith in Christ all died gloriously and unafraid. Men do not die like this for something they know to be a lie. The very existence in the world of the Christian institutions of the church, uh, the observance of Sunday, the, the observance of Easter, all testify to the literal truth of the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead. All of these institutions can be traced back to about A.D. 30 to 40. Something extraordinary must have happened at that time to give them a start. Sabbath observance, for example, was one of the most rigidly adhered to of the Jewish laws and customs. Most of the early Christians had been very devout Jews. How is it possible, apart from the resurrection, to explain the sudden change from Saturday to Sunday for the religious services of these people? The impact of Jesus Christ upon the world's history in the past 1900 years is itself a unique testimony to his own deity. Some people have considered this influence harmful, citing as evidence certain evil practices or doctrines promulgated or condoned by certain organized segments of so-called Christianity, especially during the Middle Ages and Renaissance period. He doesn't want to say Roman Catholic. I will say Roman Catholic. But in spite of these things, which in most cases have been shown to be chargeable to men or groups who are not truly Christian in the biblical sense. Uh, according to Scripture, those who have received the Lord Jesus by faith as their Savior from sin. The great majority of men who have honestly thought on the matter have recognized that the impress of Christ and his followers upon the world has been ennobling and uplifting to a degree far surpassing that of all other teachers and philosophers. The souls and lives of numberless men and women have been redeemed from sin, fear, despair, and misery to peace, holiness, and love. The morality of whole continents has been purified and elevated by the Christian gospel. Schools, hospitals, benevolent institutions of all kinds for the alleviation of suffering and advance of true knowledge have been byproducts of Christianity by accumulated thousands. Jesus Christ has been the inspiration and theme for the world's greatest music, art, and literature. That all this and much more should result from the life and teaching of an obscure Jewish carpenter, such as Jesus of Nazareth was, uh, if he were human only, it would be more miraculous and inconceivable than that he should be, as he claimed, God's only and eternal Son, become man for the purpose of redeeming man. Humanly, he was born in a stable in a small village, then was brought up in another village that was despised even by his Jewish countrymen, who themselves were then and have 
ever since been despised and often hated by the other peoples of the world. He had little formal education, no obvious cultural talents, no financial position, no political stature. He taught a small, motley, unpromising group of followers his doctrines and and made seemingly strange and impossible assertions and promises. And then, after only three and a half years of such teaching, he was unjustly crucified and died as a common criminal on a Roman cross. Yet it was this man who made statements which, if he were only a man, must immediately have stamped him a preposterous liar or a mad fanatic. For example, he said on one occasion, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If any mere man should ever say such a thing, it would immediately be interpreted by most sensible people as colossal conceit or even rank madness, especially if his human circumstances were those of of Jesus. Yet the amazing thing is that for 2,000 years this statement coming from him has sounded natural and true and trustworthy and, in fact, has been demonstrated to be a marvelously fulfilled prophecy. For 2,000 years, he has been the light of the world, inspiring all those institutions, individuals, and motives which have most contributed to all that is worthwhile in our present world. Those who have followed him have not walked in darkness, but have had the light of life. And there are millions upon millions who have testified so. Many have willingly and gladly followed him into places of hardness, even death, with no motive except love for him who died that they might have everlasting life. It was also he who said, Upon this rock, that is, upon that belief in himself as the Son of God, as just confessed by Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is also quite a ridiculous statement, if made by one who was only a man. But the centuries have revealed its prophetic realism. Against the Church of Jesus Christ, not an ecclesiastical organization, but the invisible body of those individuals who have shared Peter's confession of faith and have taken Christ into their hearts as Savior and Lord, have been hurled all the weapons of destructions that hell could conceive. The force of empires, a relentless and bloody persecution, intellectual rationalism, which is even more deadly, and worst of all, the great burden of sin and indifference in the church itself. And yet, they have not prevailed against it, even as he promised. Again, he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What a preposterous, presumptuous, outrageous claim for any man to make. But now, and he's writing in the 20th century, and we say in the 21st, more than a few are fearing the earth's imminent destruction in atomic warfare. Biblical signs of the nearing end of the age are numerous, yet Jesus' words are more widely distributed and believed by more people than ever before. More books by far have been written about him and his words than those of any other man. Through the centuries, men have acclaimed him as the world's greatest teacher and its most perfect man. In the light of all this, what reasonable conclusion is possible 
but that he is all that he claimed and can and will fulfill all his marvelous promises to those who believe on him. The very center of his mission, his teaching, and his gospel was the redemption of man from sin through his own sacrificial atoning death for man's sin. The completion of all this is signalized and guaranteed by his bodily resurrection from the dead, which has been declared again and again by men trained and competent in the analysis of evidence to be the best demonstrated fact of all ancient history. And thus the Christian worships not a dead prophet or teacher or leader, but the living Son of God, whose bodily presence at the right hand of the Father in heaven is affirmed in Scripture, and whose spiritual presence in the Christian's own heart offers further and final daily attestation to the great fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Finally, the history of the preservation and circulation of the Bible is itself a thrilling testimonial to the providential care of God for his word. None of the original manuscripts have been preserved. If they had been, men would likely have elevated them to the status of sacred relics or even idols. But so many thousands of copies were made and distributed in the early Christian centuries that any attempted suppression or corruption of the scriptures quickly became impossible. Neither the fires of persecution nor the attacks of rationalistic unbelief has prevented the continued transmission of the Bible. Today, part or all of the scriptures have been translated and published in, in 1,200 languages. That's much more now. More copies by far have been printed than of any other book ever written. Furthermore, we can be quite confident that our present English Bible, in any of the standard translations, is substantially unchanged from its original form. Though each individual manuscript may contain errors of copying here and there, the vast number of early manuscripts coming down through various channels of transmission makes it possible for textual scholars to cross-check every passage in the most thorough manner. All such scholars are agreed that today, we do have the Greek and Hebrew texts of the original writings, except for a small number of problem passages, which are still somewhat uncertain. Thus, we can be perfectly confident that when we read our Bibles, we are reading the very Word of God. And I'm going to let it go at that. That's the end of that chapter. There is another chapter on fulfilled prophecy, and much of it is very good. There's a few controversial issues in there, so I'm going to let it go. I, you can get it yourself maybe online. It's called The Bible and Modern Science, Henry M. Morris. Henry Morris is, in his own voice, I believe, also on this website, and you can check him out at the website that you're at now. I'm, I'm writing and reading from Hackberry House, but he has his own place also. Thank you so much for um, being with me during the reading of all of these uh, episodes. What a wonderful, wonderful book it is. I hope it's in your library, at least in your heart right now. Do look around the rest of this site for other readings of other great men and things about the North Korean situation and teachings of my own. And uh, next time, Lord willing, we'll talk 
about the kingdom of God. I do apologize to those who I had promised. I'm talking to people in real time here, and it's the 18th of August as this goes out. I did promise Spurgeon this week, and I just decided to go ahead and finish this instead. Lord willing, Spurgeon will be next week, and at the end of this week, we'll we'll do a day on uh, the kingdom that I've been writing about and exalting in and enjoying so much. Do look around, though. You'll find a lot of things that will bless you. I do hope. Bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on uh, August the 18th, 2022. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.